Hello, and welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is episode number 119, Say So. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. And I want to continue with the verse that we've been at for a couple of weeks now. It's a very rich verse, and um, who knows, we might get another one out of it. But uh, it's Psalm 107, and the first verse, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Okay, um, we began, and it's important to just hold this in your mind. We began with his statement that God is good and he showed that goodness in loving kindness that is everlasting, that is above and beyond time yet in time. It's God's covenant love in which he has sworn himself in love to us. When it says in Romans 8, if God be for us, wow, in that word for, there's, there's a wealth of meaning that, that God is for us. He's pro you. He's on your side. And that, that is the word behind when John said, For God so loved the world. Understand, you are a beloved, and you are beloved with a covenant love, which has sworn to love you even unto death. And of course that happened. The, the, the love of God is sealed and signed in the blood of Jesus. And then he further explains that love with this word that we took last week to talk about. Um, but I wonder if everybody fully understood it. it. It could have hit you broadside if you didn't know something of it beforehand. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord, and I'm certainly not going to repeat last week, but I will say one or two things, maybe to make it even clearer what that word means. The, the word redeemer in the Hebrew language goel, it actually means, the meaning of the word is a kinsman or a relative, a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman relative, that is, who will rescue me, who will pay my debts if necessary, get me out of a situation of poverty or bankruptcy, um, and one who would actually avenge if anyone touched me or if anyone were to kill me then my goel my redeemer would step in and avenge my blood that that is and if we had a long time just simply to study that it's all through the history books of the old testament so here's a relative that's the that's the key to this 
A redeemer must be a close relative. And that close relative is one who has the ability to do all that I've just said. He's a relative who could rescue me. He's got the wherewithal to come and get me if my enemies overtake me. He's got the kind of money that could step in and he could pay my debts and he could get me out of bankruptcy and poverty. He could. And, and of course, if he can't do that, then he must pass the responsibility, the covenant duty, on to the next nearest relative. But of course, not only could, but would. He's got to be willing to do it. His covenant love toward me must give him the will to do those things. Because he might have the ability, but if he doesn't have the covenant love front and foremost, he's not going to risk his life to rescue me or put his money into my debts or... No, the, you've got to have those things all in place, a near, close relative who can, who has the ability, and who will, will to do it. He's got the love. He will avenge me. In, in some respects, that's the first meaning of the word, an avenge. It's, it's like having your big brother with you when you are at school and the bullies come and your big brother shows up and makes it plain you touch my little brother and you're touching me and and that's the idea here though of course this does not have to be an older relative but but it's that idea that you you do you're not alone that's the point you're not alone when enemies come when you're being pressured and squeezed by enemies you know that your kinsman your relative redeemer is there and if they touch you they've got at least two to deal with but this is a big point in the Old Testament. It might seem very strange to us in what we would call a more civilized society. But, but if uh, a relative was murdered, uh, then the kinsman, the close relative to that murdered person, will become the judge, jury, and executioner of the murderer and will pursue that murderer sometimes all through a lifetime, in order to bring to justice. And that was incumbent upon your relative. He could not let your spilled blood go unanswered. And so your Redeemer, it meant that he would pursue your enemies, even your murderer, all the way through to the end. But I said also, he's your protector and your provider, that is, he's the one who will not let you sink in the swamp of debt and poverty to the point of losing your inheritance. Some of you might have checked it since last week. The whole book of, well, half of the book of Joshua deals with the parceling out of the land of Canaan. It was given to families. And it was the gift of God. They didn't pay for it. They didn't earn it. Or certainly that bunch didn't deserve it. But, but God 
portioned out the whole of the land of Canaan to these people. So every family, every family in Israel had a portion of land given to them as the gift of God. And you couldn't sell it because it was gifted. You, you held it for God. And so when you came into great debts and poverty, probably through your own stupidity, but if you came to that point, and it looks like the only way out is to lose your inheritance and let someone else have it, then your Redeemer, your near kinsman, steps in and he pays all your debts and he, he gets your land back into your hands so that, that you can now go on living and doing your business but you did it because your Redeemer stepped in I, when I was a young chap in a teenager actually in, in the London area in England where we had so many um, what, what can I say they, they were they were real Jewish people who lived by these ancient customs and it amazed me when these my, my school fellows when we graduated, all of their relatives were there to give them money to start business. And I, I talked with them. I said, this is amazing. You, you start out fresh from school and you've got all the money to start business. And the, the, the chap said to me, yes, he said, and if I fail in business, they will bail me out three times. And, and that, was, that was this, it was this Redeemer that in, in, in the family, this covenant family, uh, in the clan, we will not allow anyone to fail. We're, we're there, we'll uphold them and carry them through. And so that was the Redeemer, the near kinsman who would rescue you in the day of near poverty. But then, and this is the, the stranger yet one to our Western ears, if a brother died and left a widow, then his brother, the nearest kinsman, it was incumbent upon him this law of the Redeemer that he must now take that widow, the wife of his deceased brother, and he must now marry her, not only to look after her, but to cause the name of his brother to go on. And that, that's where it really came to the biggest test of ability and willingness to do this. That was the law of the Redeemer. Now, all through the Old Testament, and I, I don't know if this has hit you yet, but to me, it's, it's a wonder how from early in the Old Testament, God reveals himself, calls himself by the name of Redeemer. What is he saying? He is saying that he is our near kinsman. 
He is a close relative in our family and he will come to avenge us and he will be our provider and he will rescue us from the, the pit of the debt and sin that we're in and he will unite himself to us. <clears throat> How did they ever grasp that in the Old Testament? We, we can understand it because when that finally came to pass, you have it in the Gospel of Luke, when the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary and announced that she would be the virgin mother of him who was God. That God the Son would be birthed as a genuine, authentic human in her womb. And he would be born into the human family. And he would never cease to be God. But he was a hundred percent one of us. And he joined us where we are, this side of the fall. And he became the Redeemer through the shedding of his blood. Oh, there, I know, I, I talked about this last week, but, but bear with me for five more minutes. That, that he avenged us. This has been left out of so much preaching these days that what happened in the Garden of Eden? Primarily man sinned, but he sinned because he was deceived and hoodwinked by Satan. And when they confront the Lord there in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, it is that God reveals himself to be on our side against Satan. And it was that he said to Satan, a, a human being, the seed of the woman, would come and avenge what he had done to the human race and through us to God himself. Do, do you understand that? Oh, do you understand it? That God said that he would come and rescue us out from the domain of darkness where we were imprisoned in lies and deceit and illusions of satanic origin. He would avenge us and Jesus came. And have you noticed the very first thing that Jesus did as he was made declared to be the Messiah? And the Holy Spirit came upon him at the river Jordan. What was the first thing he did? He went into the wilderness to confront Satan. Because that's the one he had come to overthrow. And take back from Satan everything he'd stolen from us. He's the Redeemer, you see. He's one of us. He joined our family, was born into our ghetto. And then, as one of us, he goes to be our avenger. And this is the marvelous thing. He not only overthrew Satan, for it says that Jesus, through death, destroyed him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. The word destroyed there, incidentally, would be uh, better stated he, he, th he threw a monkey wrench in the works. That is, yeah, the, the power of Satan is still there, but a greater than he has brought the machinery to a halt. 
and, and what's he say? The Son of God was manifest to destroy. And that word is to loose us from, to, to uncouple us, to bring us out from the works of the devil. Yes, he avenged us. Yeah, but you see the avenger in, in the Old Testament custom, the avenger, um, he could do nothing about his deceased relative. All he could do was avenge the one that, that had killed him. Jesus came to deal with Satan who took you and I and the human race into death. But he didn't stop there. He came back to us who had been in, in one sense, killed in the Garden of Eden. It says we're dead in trespasses and in sins. But he, the avenger, not only dealt with the murderer, but he came and he raised us from the dead in his resurrection. And he continued to carry us into heavenly places so that we are reborn, resurrected people. Oh, he's the Redeemer. And it says, he redeemed us by his own blood, for he went into death in order to bring us out of death. He restored our inheritance and a lot more beside. He, he brought to us what Adam had never yet seen. He brought us into the inheritance of the love of God that we've talked so much about. He brought us into righteousness, which means to be in step with that love. He brought us the peace that passes human comprehension. He brought us the very joy of God Himself. And all of this in the Holy Spirit, says Romans 14. He brought us into the will, shall I say the desire, the yearning, longing, all that the Father willed to do and be for us. He brought us there. In fact, we are called joint heirs with Jesus so that we, we have this relationship with the Father that Jesus enjoys. He enjoys it by eternal nature. We enjoy it by sheer gift. Oh yeah. This is our inheritance. This is who we are. And that has, may I just throw it in quickly, that, that, that has uh, physical material dimensions. And so it's not something sort of pie in the sky. It affects my body. It affects my mind, my emotions. It affects even uh, my work and the way I work and having work and where I live and having somewhere to live. But then, as that last one where the, the Redeemer would marry the widow, unite with her. And that is the enormity of the Gospel. That, that Jesus didn't simply forgive us our sins and disappear, but rather He actually, and, and the illustration that's used in Romans chapter 7 is marriage. That, that He says we are joined to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ dwells in us and reproduces in us the life of Jesus. Well, all that being said, that's the last two weeks, but all that being said, then what, what do we do? It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
let the redeemed of the Lord say so. It's kind of strange. We, we that, that word say or say so, um, we basically, I mean, obviously it's everywhere in Scripture, but uh, it, it's such an ordinary word. It, it's so insignificant. I mean, say. He said, she said, say, speak. Um, so we, we don't bother. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we hardly notice it's there, let alone that it has a message for us. I mean, say, speak. It's just the flow of words over our tongue and out through our mouths. And I mean, happens all the time. I'm doing it right now. Yeah, but the scripture puts an enormous importance on those words that come up through the pipes of our throat and out over our tongue and out our mouth. The scripture puts enormous significance to those words and saying. Enormous. You see, we are the only creatures that God created who can do that. Think about that. In, in all of Time and the ages of ages, there are only two who speak. There's us, but we speak because we're made in the image of God who speaks. This word, say, yes, I know it's the most uh, commonly used, insignificant word, but do you realize this word said, say, speak, is only used of God and us. Now, if that doesn't bring you up short, I don't know what would. You are unique. You talk. You speak. You say. What I am now doing, and the fact that you can comprehend what I'm doing, and the words that are proceeding out of my mouth, that places us in a class so vastly above the highest primate. And so apes and gorillas and chimpanzees, yes, they do stuff very much like us sometimes, but then there's this gigantic leap where we are in God's class. And we speak, and we say. You see, this word here, let the Lord, redeemed of the Lord, say. So that word, say, do you know that this uh, verb is first used, and there's a lot to be said for what we call the law of first mention. The first time anything's mentioned in the Bible, it usually gives you a clue as to every other time. Well, do you know the first time this is mentioned in the Bible? Genesis 1, where it says, And God said, Let there be light. The first time this word is used in the Bible, it is in the very speaking forth from God. This is a God word before it became a human word. And it remains a God word 
And every time we speak, we are stating in what we're doing that we're made in the image of God. So, so what does this word mean? Well, really, that's... Uh, it means to say. It, it, it means everything that you think it means. It means to say, to speak. It also means to answer in the Hebrew language. And so that might be pushing it a little bit further than you might be used to, but, but still, it's still within the same ideas that we're used to, to say something, to speak, to, to answer someone. And let me just say, in this particular text, and elsewhere in the scripture, it, it has, in the phrase say so, it, it has the idea of repeating, uh, to say after, to say with, to repeat something. Now, when this word is used to describe what God is doing, when God said, when God speaks, it has in it um, certain other ideas, which are again are very obvious when you think about it. It means that what he is saying is creative. His words are not only life, but they are life-producing. They, they call into being what they're saying. So God's words are creative. And God's words are final and absolute truth. There is not a lie in Him. There is not a deviation from the truth in Him. He can only speak the truth because He is the truth. And so... His words are creative words. His words are absolute truth, which means um, that they're absolute reality. His words being truth mean that His words are final reality, whatever else I might be seeing. His words are reality. And in the words of God come authority and command but again we're really just back to saying it's just that when God says I've, I've, I've heard the final authority when, when God said he never makes suggestions he's speaking truth and therefore it's a command and it, it's not a, a, a hurtful command because he only speaks reality and, and he only speaks out of love and his word, I say, creates what it says. That's this word here. I say, it's all that I've just said is this word here, because this text is saying that we are to repeat. We are to say again. We are to say with God. That is, when he says, you are redeemed, my saying, my speaking, my answer is, I am redeemed. And I say that on the authority of God's saying. I say that because He has spoken in Jesus Christ, the creative word that rebirthed me. I can say that. 
because it's the final and absolute truth that's the reality so let this is our God you see he is good his loving kindness is everlasting he is your Redeemer well then redeemed let the redeemed of the Lord say say what God says say it with him say it after him but say the truth which is the truth of God and when you have the word of God in your mouth and you are saying what God says then you 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 are participating in God's creative word you are participating you are bringing into creation his truth his reality and you're doing it with his authority and all the time you are answering him saying this is the truth this is the truth and I'm saying it the the entire psalm I know I've said this every week that the, the entire psalm gives illustrations of that. that. That the person who wrote the psalm is repeating. He's saying again, or he's giving testimony to saying, this is what God has done. This is, look, this is the Redeemer. This is how he's good. This is his loving kindness. And he is saying it. I, I think this is what Joshua chapter 1 was talking about when the Lord said to Joshua that this word that he'd given to Moses that Moses passed on this word is not to depart your mouth he said and he uses the word meditate and the Hebrew word meditate is totally different totally different to the word meditate that comes from the east and um, is very much around us today here in the US anyway um, and that form of meditation means to empty your mind go into nothing into blankness um, no the, the Bible word meditation is the reverse of that it means to fill your mind with the Word of God and filling your mind with the Word of God it fills your heart which is the very source of your being and it springs up like an artesian well out through your mouth and so he says that, that you are to meditate on this book of the law day and night and this word is not to depart out of your mouth and so you shall be successful in all your ways I think that's that's what this is essentially talking about that um, we, we, we say so we repeat his words in our mouth after they become part of our heart let, let me um, say <laughs> this uh, that we ha have a, a generation of believers who I honestly do believe the Word of God is in their heart but they never get it to their mouth to people speak of you know I've got to get it from my head to my heart yeah I know what you mean by that but now that that's not enough from your heart to your mouth 
That that's biblical. We, uh, you know, we. When we read, essentially, we read silently. You know, you you see people reading, and their mouths are rarely moving. Anyway, some people do, but uh, rarely. Uh, most of the time, the people's eyes are just going down the page, and what's happening is inside our head, and that's as is. I, I'm not commenting on that, except that in the days of the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, they, I'll say they didn't do that. I was about to say they didn't know how to do that. It never occurred to them to do it. They always spoke it out loud. And when they read the scripture or when they prayed, they always spoke it out loud. And so you, you may be sitting close to a company of people, but if you're reading the scripture, you would read it out loud. And, and there's a lot to be said for that. For I am speaking it, but also in speaking it, I am hearing it. And hearing it, it is being communicated back into my mind and into my heart and back out through my mouth. That, that's meditation in the biblical sense of the word. It is this continual flowing through of the word of God until it has infused my mind and infuses the way I speak and infuses my lifestyle which is now aligned to what I say. In fact, James speaks of this in, in his epistle. James, what is it, chapter 3? Where, where he says that the tongue, he does a lot of stuff on the tongue, it's awful power, and, and, and he said with the tongue, he said, the tongue, this way you frame words, make the noise of saying, he, he said, it's, it's like the bit that you put in the horse's mouth. Um, some of you folks from... New York and so on, you wouldn't know what that is, I don't think. Um, down here in Texas, you'd better know what it is. Everybody rides a horse. It's, it's that piece of metal that they put inside the horse's mouth so that they can guide the horse where they want it to go. It's called the bit. And um, he, he says, James says, the tongue is like the bit that we put in the horse's mouth so that we can guide it. He says, your tongue guides you. What you say, he says, guides your whole body. Now, I'm quoting. That's exactly what he says. Your tongue guides your whole body, which, of course, is our body that gives us all our problems. And, and, and he says, it's also, it's, it's like the rudder on a ship. And he says, here's this great ship. And yet it is guided through the waters by this little tiny piece of metal on the back of the rudder. And as it turns, so the ship turns. That's your tongue. He says, that's your tongue. And, and, and so as we speak, as we say, that is signaling direction to our mind and, and it's signaling direction even to our other senses. 
It's even taking control over the organs of our body. That's what James says. I know that sounds far out, but that's in the scripture. That we follow our tongue. As we speak, so our body becomes aligned to the words that we speak. This is amazing. It's amazing. When, when you realize, he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And, and as I said, as far as any Hebrew person in the Old Testament reading that, it didn't mean think so. It meant to speak it out, to say so. We are the redeemed of the Lord. And, and redeemed of the Lord... That is His, this is God's assessment of who you are. He says, I have redeemed you in Isaiah. He speaks it very plainly. Paul says in the New Testament, you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's, that's God's assessment of you. That is His final word on the subject. That is his authoritative word. You are redeemed. That's who you are. And you are that by the Father's love initiative and by God the Son coming to become our relative and shedding his blood and completely overthrowing the one who held us in captivity bondage to his lies, raised us from the dead and made us the sons and daughters of the Father. Yeah, that's God's assessment of you. It's the Father who has given to us our inheritance which is to be shared by us with Jesus. With all its, what can I say, heavenly and mental and emotional and physical and material extensions. Yes, that's it. And, and like a rudder that guides our whole being, that word in our mouth, spoken, guides our whole being. Not, not just our life, but it guides the appetites of my body. It guides the senses, the way I see things, the way I think things, that tongue that speaks, that says so, guides me through life so that we no longer, if we, if we continually see ourselves and speak aloud before the Lord, we say so. And, and as we mull over the scripture and realize its truth and we say so before God our Father in our union with Jesus in the Holy Spirit we say so and before demons in the darkness we say so to the Father it gets into our conversation and there's certain things we no longer say because this say-so has filled our vocabulary. And I don't mean that you go around quoting scripture in people's faces, but I do mean that your language 
the way you talk and the way your body now determines its wants and all now become beautifully subject, aligned to the truth wherein is joy and peace and abundance of love. And so we no longer judge a situation by what that situation is saying to our senses and how our senses interpret it. Rather, we judge it in the light of the fact he's our redeemer and I am redeemed and I walk into this situation as a redeemed one, one that Jesus, God, our close relative, has said, I'm with you in this, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. We, we are answering him. That, that's, you see, to, un to use this word, as I said earlier, can also mean to answer. Well, it, it's actually another way of saying amen. You understand? God says to me, you are my redeemed one. I am your redeemer. My answer, I say, you are my redeemer. I am redeemed. That is, I've said the amen. Yes, that is the way it is. It is, that is the way it is, and let it be so, which is the, the full meaning of that Hebrew word, Amen. Say so. Now, th this, you see, suddenly, this is not as easy as it. it. It looks so silly easy that we just don't bother with it. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so and go on away. But this is getting difficult, you see. Because to say who God says I am, I, I find it awkward. I, I'm not used to this. This is strange to my mouth. You realize. It's when you get to your mouth that you do realize just the kind of death that you used to call life. To realize the domain of darkness and lies that you thought was the way life is. And to realize that it's, it's that safe zone. We, we feel more comfortable talking lies. We're more at home in satanic illusions than we are in the light of God's creative truth. We're much more comfortable giving the assessment of life and what's happening listening to our flesh senses than we are by listening to and saying with what God says about the situation. Think about that. We talk about spiritual warfare. Well, this is where it starts. Right in your tongue. I, I, I've said it, and I don't want you to think I'm some obsessed nutcase on this, but the number of people I meet who so glibly, you know, say, 
uh, I am depressed, I am unhappy, I am, and they use all the language of the darkness, you know, and, and talk about the future in terms of this is what's going to happen, this is it, this is it, and, and they speak of apocalyptic darkness coming upon us, and and, and they, they, they are speaking, dear Lord, do they realize they're setting their rudder, this is the way my body is going. This is my organs have got to respond to these lies. And what happens is sickness and disease. Well, take sickness. I am sick. We, we own disease and speak of it as if it's my sickness. It's my cancer. It, it, it's my arthritis. It's my diabetes. We're do you realize what you're saying? Christ is your life. Oh, I don't doubt that you have all the effects in your body. But please don't own it. Understand that in your body is the Shekinah glory of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Every morning, say what God says. He's redeemed you and He fills every organ of your body with His life and His light. See, this say-so business, um, it's really, we're speaking of our identity. Uh, who are you? Who are you? When yourself talks to yourself who does yourself say that yourself is who are you it's identity what do you say so what what do you say so our identity is rooted in the identity of our god and father and lord jesus christ and he of himself said i am your redeemer which makes me his redeemed. I am the person God says I am. Not the person I feel I am, or think I am, or think I ought to be. And considering my wretched family, who I probably am, no, none of that. You are who God says you are. And you say so after God's say so. Identity. You realize that the entire story of the entrance of sin and the entrance of salvation is all based on this identity, say so. I mean, what was it? Satan comes into the Garden of Eden. What what do they talk about? I mean, have you really started? I mean, that's where all the problems began. So it be a jolly good idea to find out. Um, Satan began to, I'll say, insinuate, because he didn't come right out, and, and yet it is in your face at the same time. He spoke about the identity of God. Is he really what you think? Is he really what he said? Hath God said? Did God really say that? Did he really mean it? And it was injected like poison in the stew. 
that it would infect everything. That God is not what he's cracked up to be. He, he's actually holding back something from you of tremendous importance. It was that suspicion that was put into the human mind about God. God's identity was dishonored. And then, based on that, Satan switched to the identity of the human and said, disobey him. Do, do what he told you not to do because you can't trust him, you see. So, go for it alone because what he told you not to do is really the beginning of life for you. In fact, if you do what he said not to do, you will discover that you are God's, independent of him and all-powerful in yourself. Identity, identity. Who is God? Not what you think he is. Who are you? Not who you think you are. Just listen to me, the friendly snake, and I will lead you to life. And that's the fall of man. And that's where the trouble started. Identity. And, and still to this day, because Satan is very boring, he never gets beyond what he started doing. Still, it's identity. There's the suggestion in your head that God isn't love. God, God isn't good. He isn't who he said he is. Just the suggestion. Just enough throw you right off course and, and and then who are you well you think you're righteous you you think God loves you accepts you after all you did and the accuser the accuser it's identity who are you you God is who God says he is and you are who God says you are and when temptations wash over you and when flaming arrows hit into your head, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so. You've been redeemed. And notice we've not even talked about the second part of that verse. Uh, let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Identity. And have you noticed it was Jesus' temptations right there? You notice that? When Jesus went to confront Satan, he did the same thing all over again. He said, If, <coughs> if you're the Son of God, you know, <coughs> oh yeah. Jesus has just been told by the Father, confirming every movement of the Spirit within him for the last 30 years. The Father says, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father said, and the Spirit came and confirmed it. Jesus is spoken to by the Father that he is the Son of God. He goes into the wilderness and Satan's first temptation. If, oh, dear Lord, you haven't changed since the Garden of Eden, have you? If, if, 
if, if you're the son of God. <laughs> I, I mean, quite frankly, you don't look much like the son of God. Starved, gaunt, sunburned after 40 days without food in the wilderness, boy. If you're, excuse my laughter, if you're the son of God. If you're the. So by saying that if, that was dishonoring the father. It was saying the father didn't mean a word he said. It's, it's all illusions and lies, you see. If. And, and, and as far as your identity, I, you really think you're the son of God? Doesn't look like it, does it? I wouldn't think the son of God was a carpenter in Nazareth. Come on, give me a break. If you're the son of God, let's do some dazzling thing to show it. Identity. Only Jesus, as the last Adam, did not do what the first couple did. Jesus answered the Father. He slapped Satan, but by answering the Father and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There you have it. Jesus answered the Father with trust and with dependence upon his word. Well, I, I don't know where we all stand on this. But I pray the Holy Spirit will bring this so deeply. We face situations, we face words spoken to us. And it all comes back to this. You are redeemed, then say so. And say so until you think so, and your thinking comes out through your mouth in every way you speak. Of course, it means that a lot of your friends won't be friends anymore. I've got, to, I've got to warn you of that because you will not be able to talk their language of the darkness. Nor will you have to go to all the things and places they go to in order to find something that is a phony, false peace and joy. Because you'll have it like an artesian well within you. You have been redeemed out of that darkness, out of those words of despair and hopelessness and poverty and let the redeemed of the Lord say so, you understand? We say so. We say so and the New Testament uh, uses the same idea that in everything give thanks. In everything give praise to God. Wherever you find yourself, <clears throat> remember you're redeemed and therefore whatever it looks like is neither here nor there. In the midst of this I give praise to God that he is my redeemer and he is with me and I am in him even as he is in me. Hence the joyous words, the words of gladness. And you see at that time your senses basically say, don't be daft. You, you, this is no time to be happy. This is no time to give thanks to God. Look at the way things are. 
but we're on that different, what shall I say, we're, we're on different wavelengths. They're, they're talking AM and you're talking FM. We're, we're, we're on a different wavelength. And therefore we know whatever is happening, what, whatever is threatening, this is the God who is our kinsman, who stands in our shoes, and who already has gone into death by the shedding of his blood, has defeated death. He rose from death and carried us out with him. And we're now seated with him in the heavens. We're redeemed. And therefore, we can say so in the face of the darkness and give praise to God. And we can, we can dare to be joyous, put joy into our words, which of course makes you look absolutely stupid in, in the face of whatever might be happening to you. This is the essence of worship we are saying of God or that God has revealed himself in Jesus to be. And that's why it says in Isaiah 35, and we quoted the whole thing last week, but, but in Isaiah 35 it says that the, these redeemed, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. Zion is shorthand for that immediate presence of God in which David wrote so many of the Psalms. That, that place of limitless joy and peace and the reaching out of the embracing covenant love of God's Zion. He says, we, we have come. We've been rescued and we have come. The redeemed, the ransomed of the Lord have come to Zion. With joy and with gladness. And then it says, everlasting joy is upon their head. It's speaking of halo. That, that it says we, we, we are wearing um, helmets of light. The everlasting joy is around our head. So that our very brain is baptized in joy and thanksgiving. And it says sorrow and sighing shall flee away. They'll disappear into the darkness. The light is too much for them, like cockroaches when you turn on the light. Well, my time has gone. And I trust that these thoughts on Psalm 107 have been a blessing to you. And now, indeed, the blessing of God, who is almighty, covenant, love, May that God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you. Bless you by opening the eyes of your understanding to heart see that you are the redeemed and that you are seated with Christ, a fellow heir with Him in heavenly places. So, I bless you and declare that is the way it is.